Lily. Oh, thank you, Father. I thank you for Lily. Thank you for this wonderful teaching that she's bringing to us. And thank you for your word of truth that we can bank our life on. For it is the truth that saves us. And I pray, thank you for the faith that you have given all of us as a gift that is not of our own. Oh, and thank you that you give us the ears to hear today what more you have to share with us. And may we continue in our growth process and get stronger in faith in you. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. <laughs> and hello, chapter four. <laughs> Today marks actually our fifth week, uh, which means for me I'm halfway done of my 10 weeks of teaching and exploring Romans together. And so I thought today we would take um, a, a little, a few moments to do more of a gr grand review, to, just to tickle our memories of where we've been so far. So chapter one, we found the gospel which is the good news that Jesus came to earth, he died for our sins, and because God raised him bodily from the dead after he was crucified, he was therefore proven to be God's son and Lord. And so this good news came and became the power of God for salvation to everyone who behaves. I'm glad you laughed, because no, what is it? It's for everyone who believes. believes. Thank you. For everyone who believes. And this would be Jews and non-Jews alike. We all come to God in the exact same way, through belief or faith. But also in chapter 1, Paul talks about God's wrath being revealed against ungodliness, wickedness, suppression of the truth. And that started a whole discussion that embodied really the second half of chapter one, all of chapter two, and the first half of chapter three. And the point of that discussion is that every human being is without excuse for not honoring God and for not being thankful to God. So no one is righteous. God's perfect law silences every mouth, and there, there we were, in a predicament with eternal consequences. And so God's law had done exactly what it was designed to do. It silenced our excuses, it exposed our addiction to sin, and it led us to look for a solution, which, yay, we got to finally last week. Romans 3, 21 through 31. And the solution is, drum roll, justification by faith. That is God's beautiful solution. And what did we learn last week about justification? We learned that justification is the same thing as righteousness, which is the same thing as salvation, right? Three English words that basically say the same thing, that we enter into right relationship with God through his son Jesus because he loves us and he died in our place. On the cross, on the cross, 
When God carried out his judgment of all sin, remember last week Paul called that the sacrifice of atonement, Jesus got the wrath that we deserved. And we got the pleasure of God that he deserved. Unbelievable, isn't it? And you get this good pleasure or this favor of God or this right relationship or this salvation, however you want to say it, we get it not corporately through attending a certain church, through being born in a certain country, but rather individually through faith. Your belief that Jesus really died on your behalf. And faith, we said, is simply coming to God with empty hands, believing that he justified us or put us right in relationship with him. Wow, (laughs) that was a lot. And wow, righteousness, salvation is not based on works. By keeping the Ten Commandments, by, by holding fast to the Old Testament law, That kind of thinking is so hard to get away from, isn't it? And it was even radical in the day when Paul wrote Romans. It's almost like that kind of thinking is just in our DNA. Have you noticed that? And maybe it's because of our link to Adam and Eve, our first parents, the first parents of everyone. Think about those first humans for a second in connection with the book of Romans. God creates Adam and Eve in his image, right? And he said that work of his was very good. And then Satan slithers in, enters the picture, and he tempts them to take a a bite of that forbidden fruit. And how does he do that? He says, you will be like God. But wait, don't do it, Adam and Eve. God already told you that he made you in his image. They already were as like God as they could ever be. And so the original temptation was to work or to do something for what they already had. And the enemy has been tempting humankind in the exact same way ever since to work for what we already have. And is this truly that Paul speaks against for a good part of Romans? Paul himself had fallen into that trap as a Pharisee, and so he is just adamant that we not be among the tricked and the deceived. Through Jesus, Paul says, God has given all believers a righteous identity as saints, and we are to work from that identity not in order to get that identity. So last week in Romans chapter 3, Paul argued that point theologically. And now in chapter 4, Paul goes on to back it up historically by bringing in two Old Testament examples. And it just seemed to me that it was a bit like Paul, the author, isn't quite satisfied yet that his case for justification for faith is quite airtight. And so with this in mind, it seems to me that we are, we are like in a courtroom now. 
in chapter 4. Paul is the defense attorney and he calls in these two witnesses to the stand in an effort to lock in his case that he is making for justification by faith. Paul, in essence, is saying, hey, righteousness by faith is not some new theological fad. It has its roots all the way back in the book of Genesis. These two witnesses that he calls are Abraham and David. And this is brilliant, I think, and I think you'll see why. So first, Abraham, I mentioned briefly last week with regard to the covenant or the promise that God had made to Abraham. Let's read that promise again. I will make you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is a whole lot of blessing, isn't it? What a promise. God's purpose for Abraham and Israel, the nation that he had promised, was for them to receive blessing and then to distribute blessing. Think about this. Do you think that God still has embedded blessing in his people with the same exact purpose? To bless others. Check out Galatians 3.9 sometimes. The fulfillment of the promise, though, didn't happen immediately, did it? And so God comes back again, speaks with Abraham in Genesis 15, 5, and gives him this assurance. Taking him outside one night, he said, Abraham, look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And of course, he could see millions. <laughs> Remember, there, wasn't, there weren't the city lights that kind of fade out the stars back then. Remember, there wasn't the pollution, I'm, I'm guessing, that we have now. Abe couldn't begin to count the stars. And the Lord said, exactly, exactly. And that's how many descendants you're going to have. Too many to count. What a promise. And then comes Abraham's shining moment that is actually referred to in our passage of Romans 4.23 today. He believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. That is how many descendants you'll have, Abraham, and he believed the Lord. So there it is, the support of Paul's case in this imaginary courtroom that righteousness is reckoned by belief. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so that word reckoned, oh, let's talk about that. That is a very important word in chapter four. It is used, I underlined it in my Bible, in red, 10 times. Reckoned. Reckoned is also translated credited to or counted as. And so the original Greek word means to confer onto someone a status. A status that wasn't there prior. An excellent example of this true meaning of this word reckoned is in the present-day real estate world. Have you ever heard of leasing to buy? 
Leasing to buy. How many of you heard of that? Most of you. Good. For those who don't know, leasing to buy, it's not outright renting a home, and it's not outright buying a home, but rather what happens is a person lives in a house, makes payments that are considered rent payments, but they have the option to buy. And if they decide to buy, then all those past rent payments are now reckoned as mortgage payments. Do you see? A new status is conferred on those rent payments. And so in verse 23, Paul says that Abraham believed God. That was Abraham's decision, if you will, to buy in. (laughs) And it's like God says, you know, Abraham, you made that measly little rent payment, but guess what? Now you're going to own the whole house outright. (laughs) It's even better than rent to buy. You own the whole house, Abraham. I reckon it to you. Reckoned righteousness means that God actually treated Abraham as if he had really lived a righteous life. We know he hasn't, but God counted it as if he had. Do you think you too, you too can be loved and accepted by God even though you sin? even though you are imperfect? Do you remember that Romans is a letter to saints? This is how God sees those of us who buy in to his gracious plan of salvation, even though we sin. Well, God follows through, always does, on his covenant with Abraham and the nation of Israel begins When Abraham and his wife Sarah have a son in their old age, a miracle baby named Isaac. But boy, the road to the fulfillment of that promise of God was rocky. Rocky at best. And yes, there was sin involved on the part of Abraham, but God was true to his promise. And Abraham was and is famous and beloved and known really forevermore as the father of the Jews and even more than that, the father of faith. That is, the father, the ancestor of everyone who has faith. Started with Abraham. We are his offspring if we have faith, according to Galatians 3.7. Now, the other person Paul calls up to the witness stand is David. So what does that Old Testament character have to do with Paul's case that he's building, that, that salvation is by faith and apart from works or keeping the law. Basically, I think Paul is saying in verse 6, see, even David says so. Well, this is how he actually says it. He says, so also David speaks of the blessedness of those whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And then he actually is quoting David. He says, blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. Did you catch that? God reckons righteousness. We've already said that, but the opposite is true as well. He will not reckon what? Sin. And so David 
is one of Paul's chief witnesses of his case for righteousness by faith alone. David, a revered king of Israel of, of past, he came along 14 generations after Abraham. And under David's rule, Israel had indeed blossomed and flourished and into this great nation that God had promised in his covenant with Abraham. They were a great nation by now. David had so much to be proud of. He had expanded Israel's borders. Jerusalem had been established as the capital city. And right at the center of Jerusalem was that Ark of the Covenant that we studied about in our study of Moses that symbolized the very presence of God living in Jerusalem, living in this great nation of Israel that God had formed. That was there. That was a focal point during his time. And on and on and on, David was a great king. Israel was blessed. And I can just picture, you know those life is good t-shirts? I can just picture David at that time, you know, wearing life is good. You know, and they have those, those cute little stick figure guys on there. And, and, and David's stick figure would be dancing, you know, and because we know David loved music. He wrote most of the Psalms, and he, we know he loved to dance. But maybe life was a little bit too good for David. Perhaps you know the story. Besides having so many reasons to be proud, David also had plenty of which to be ashamed. He, for one, was an adulterer. He was a conspirator and then a murderer. David actually killed a husband. He killed a man that was his faithful and loyal subject in order to officially steal his wife after David got her pregnant. Pretty bad. But through a process of God's divine conviction and repentance and the consequences of losing their uh, that child after seven days of, of life only, this beloved and yet sinful king made a, the most wonderful discovery of his life. And that is, as he wrote, the immense blessedness of one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, apart from anything he does. Look again at verses 7 and 8. Paul is actually quoting Psalm 32 that David himself wrote. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. Did you notice that David does not say, blessed are those who do not sin and through obedience have avoided sin? No, he admits that he has iniquities, doesn't he? And don't we all, if we're honest? We may not have blatant sins like David did that others see, but you know God sees our thought life. And perhaps you know that Jesus really leveled the playing field with that in Matthew 5 as he equates our thought life with actually having committed the sin. Jesus said murder is hating your brother or your sister. Jesus said adultery is looking with lust at another human being. 
But David's sins, okay, they are famous. They are written down. They are preserved through the ages. Wow. How would you like that? And yet, how does he still know that he is blessed and is obviously so amazed, isn't he, that the Lord will not reckon his sin against him? There's that word again, reckon. Being in the state of reckoned righteousness means that your sin is not counted against you. I don't know. I found it personally true that God, far from excluding me because of my failures, has often worked my failures into his great plan for me. Not that I recommend that route. Should I sin more that grace may abound? By no means. May it never be, Paul says, but failure. Can God use that? Does God use that? Or does it prevent God from doing what he promised? No way, right? No. Despite failure, time and time again, God fulfills his promises. As we saw last week, remember? Remember, um, despite Israel's failure, to be light to the Gentiles, God still kept his promise. He blessed that nation and he still kept his promise through the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Furthermore, God, as shown in the life of David and Abraham, after failure does way more than just boom, bring you back to neutral in your relationship with him. He treats you as if you have lived a righteous life. How can this be? Who is our God that he would do that? Only because of his amazing grace. Grace, the unearned, undeserved favor of God. And though David sinned, though you've sinned, though I sin, sin does not condemn us. It actually does not affect our status before God. Wow. I can't explain it. But isn't that the case Paul is trying to make by calling Abraham and then David to the witness stand? And I can't explain it. All I can do is believe it. And I do. Did you know that murderers wrote a good part of our Bible? It's true. Murderers. Moses, from our false study, killed an Egyptian in rage. David, we just said, killed a guy to steal his wife. Our author, Paul, killed tons of Christians in self-righteous pride. You want to hear Paul's resume? Imagine, do you think he'll get a job? Listen to this. I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. Blasphemy is punishable by death, by the way. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. (laughs) Think you'll get a job? Writing three-quarters of our New Testament? Doesn't feel likely, does it? So think about this. The oldest biblical text that we have is the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? 
2,700 years old. What do you think is God's reason for putting the faults and the failures of his own people down in writing and then miraculously preserving them all through the ages? Is it to keep us from sinning? And if so, how has that worked for us? Or is it to display God's grace in reckoning the Bible characters righteous, treating them as if they have lived righteously, and thereby drawing us as sinners to himself? Remember, we learned in Romans 2, 4 that God's kindness is meant to draw us to himself in repentance. Don't you think God knew that at some point in our lives, each of us would need to see and read these examples of his grace because we would deal with sin in our own life? Isn't that why he preserved the real lives of Abraham and David in the pages of Scripture? Now, someone in here might be thinking, so God really ignores sins as big as murder and adultery? Oh, no. Please don't hear that. That's not what I said. God does not ignore sin. He hasn't changed from the God he was in the Old Testament when he essentially said, a life for a life. The Old Testament law was full of offenses that resulted in capital punishment. God's standard for righteous living is that high. The Old Testament had that whole sacrificial system, didn't it, of killing animals. And that system had the whole idea by it, behind it, that sin equals death. Our holy God is vastly offended by sin. He takes it seriously. But our holy God is also a God of love, immense love, unbelievable love. He actually is the definition of love. For God so loved the world. Say it with me. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You guys, you and I are the blessed recipients of that love. And love makes a way where there seems to be no way. And the way that God made was Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then he died on the cross. And he was the final sacrifice. The sacrificial system ended. There was no other sacrifice needed, according to the book of Hebrews. He paid it all. You see, 
grasping the truth of being reckoned by God as righteous is actually the only way anyone has enough freedom to honestly look at himself or herself. Without knowing God's beautiful reckoning gift, I'd have to ignore the truth that God is righteous and I absolutely am not. Or, without understanding of the amazing implications of justification by faith, the other option would be absolutely to be crushed by my own sin. Crushed and feeling like I've blown it so badly that my life is over. My relationship with God is null. It's void. And I might as well just eat, drink, and be merry because all I have to look forward to now is hell. Those would be my only two options. To ignore my sin or to be in complete despair over it. Remember last week, though, our passage, but now. But now the righteousness of God has been disclosed, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Ah. You know, Paul seems to be saying, ah, in chapter 4 to me as well. As he circles back then, after talking about Abraham first, then David, he circles back now to Abraham's story, and he talks about Abraham in this glowing way glowing abraham he said he, he he without weakening in his faith he said no distrust made him waver concerning the promises of god it says that abraham was fully convinced that god was able to do what he promised really <laughs> what's going on here is paul forgetting how the old testament story really came down didn't abraham weaken and waver Paul knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. Why was he leaving that part out? You know, the part that Abraham tried to hurry along the promise and he slept with his wife's maid, Hagar. That's not mentioned, is it, in our passage today? Why? Why did Paul, why did God, through Paul, Use Abraham's faith as our example. I love the answer to this. You see, although the Old Testament is brutally honest, right out there with Abraham and David's sin, I was going to call it shortcomings. I was going to call it failure. Let's just call it sin. While the Old Testament is brutally honest about these men, these revered men's sin, their sins aren't mentioned in the New Testament. Why? Because of the thoroughness, the absolute thoroughness of the forgiveness that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And that is the great news. Better than good news, it's the great news that Jesus died, he rose from the dead, he completed forever that equation of sin equals death. Jesus paid the penalty for all sin, and that was going back in history to David and Abraham, and it stretched all the way into our future sins. 
We talked about that last week, how, how in the Old Testament, God was operating under this principle of forbearance in the Old Testament and, and how we too are getting the benefit now of Jesus' sacrifice 2,000 years later. That is a lot of coverage, isn't it? That spans a lot of years. Their sins aren't mentioned in the New Testament, Abraham's and David's, because the blood of Jesus causes the Father to forget, to forget the sins of the people of faith. That is promised to us in the Old Testament, actually, in Isaiah 43, 25. God speaking here says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake. And get this last part. I will not remember your sins. Holy amnesia. (laughs) He says he won't remember And he doesn't remember. Abraham and David's stories, you know, are forever linked to our stories. Because listen again to how our passage concludes. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were written not for his sake alone, but, say it, for ours also. It will not It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Praise Jesus. Yes? Praise him. So I close today with three questions for you to think about and maybe discuss straight away at your tables, table leaders, which of your trespasses are not covered by this verse? Which ones? Share that at your table today. See what happens. <laughs> and second, on to what sin of another are you holding? Hmm. That'll stab my heart today. And could today be the day, could it, of forgiving and forgetting? as God has. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we praise you. We praise you for this wonderful truth from your divine brain of justification by faith and the amazing grace and truly the profound love behind it. And we marvel together as we head off to our table times. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.